Hello and welcome to episode 1343 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast for Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and I am joined by guest co-host and former colleague of Baseball Prospectus and current host of the Infinite Inning podcast and longtime friend Steve Goldman. Hey Steve. Hey Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy to have you here. I feel like I should say just for the listeners who are wondering that this will be the last guest co-host before the permanent co-host announcement is made. So stay tuned sometime soon. I don't want to overshadow the pleasure of having you guest co-host this episode, (laughs) but I worry that the Facebook group is about to devolve into a Lord of the Flies situation if order is not restored sometime soon. So know that order is about to be restored, but I'm happy that I've had time to have you on today. It's not that the guest hosts, including myself, were so bad that you finally had to make a decision (laughs) before the whole thing was just destroyed. (laughs) Nope. There were no auditions going on. There was nothing of that sort. It was just a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff that would not be all that interesting. You could have done Effectively Wild Idol. I saw some suggestions to that effect, but I knew who we wanted it to be, so there was no need. But... We are going to do a a team preview podcast today, and you and I are talking to two writers from The Athletic. I feel like I've talked to just about half of The Athletic staff in this series at this point, but we'll be talking to Sahadov Sharma about the Cubs and Levi Weaver about the Rangers. But before we do, a bit of banter. There was some news about a Yankees pitcher and also about a former Yankees pitcher. So starting with the current one, Luis Severino was scratched from a start. He had an MRI that showed inflammation to his rotator cuff, which are not words that any Yankees fan wants (laughs) to hear. He will be out of action for at least a couple weeks. He'll have the usual rest and rehab and anti-inflammatories, and then we shall see. And it sounds like that will probably push him back so that he will not make opening day and hopes are that he'll be back not too long after that but of course when rotator cuffs and pitchers are involved there's always some cause for concern well they still have great depth in terms of james paxton and masahiro tanaka and J.A. Happ, the thing that I kind of worry about, and this is possibly from the perspective of my old nitpicking pinstripe Bible days when I had multiple times a week to complain about a, a team that was winning on average about 130 games a year. <laughs> yeah. And so, damn it, change up that utility infielder because the one at bat a month he gets is not going well. <laughs> this is that kind of complaint. But they were already setting Luis Sessa up to make the starting rotation, or he was competing for a spot in the starting rotation. And nothing personal against Luis Sessa. But if you look at his stats, he's kind of a scary fly ball guy. And I say scary fly ball guy because in the context of Yankee Stadium 3, or however you number the stadium sequels, that's not the greatest combination. And I do realize that over the course of his three-year audition for a regular role, those home run numbers have been coming down somewhat, but it's still 1.7 per nine for 151 career innings. That's 28 home runs. I don't know if you use him as a starter, if you you just have cannonades going off everywhere. And again, this is a this is a quibbling thing given the depth that they have and that they have other pitchers such as Jonathan Lasagna, but it's something to worry about, at least if Severino's gone in the the long term. But of course, if he's gone in the long term, they have even bigger concerns than that. 
Yeah, and this makes me think of the extension that Severino just signed, four years and $40 million, which I think a lot of people looked at and thought, Severino's been probably a top 10 pitcher in baseball the last couple of years. Why would he sign for $40 million? And this is why I think this is the kind of thing that inspires players, particularly pitchers, to sign these extensions that to us seem below market or team-friendly and in a way they are. But it's just that they can't really assume the risk that one day they will wake up with a bad rotator cuff, whereas a team can. And so for Severino, $40 million secures you for life, even if you do have an injury crop up. And hopefully this will not be anything that derails his career or keeps him out for a very long time. But that's always the risk. And so you can understand why when it comes right down to it and someone's offering you $40 million, you might say, well, I'm really worth 50 or I might be worth 50 or 60 if I just hold out a little longer. But there is always this risk that one day something acts up and you never know, it can turn into something serious. I think about this all the time when you see college players trying to decide whether they'll go back for one more year or not. And of course, if you go back for one more year and somebody clips your knee somehow, Mm -hmm. that could be all she wrote. And you go from having, I don't know, 20 or $30 million a year in future value to pretty much having minimum wage future value. It's It's a problem. And- In a certain sense, it's one that grips us all. We're all just one slip and fall away from having zero future value. (laughs) But it's it seems to be a a more present and imminent urgent concern for pitchers, given the repetitive stress of what they do. Right. And this is one of the things that makes me relieved that I no longer root for a team, although there are aspects (laughs) of that that I miss, because it always used to frustrate me so much when guys would go down before the season even started, because you know that injuries are inevitable and probably there's going to be a serious injury at some point. But it always felt extra frustrating to me when it would happen during exhibition season, during games that didn't even count. And of course, that is maybe when it's most likely to happen, particularly with pitcher injuries, especially Tommy John injuries. A lot of that stuff crops up at this point of the year because guys are just trying to ramp back up after an offseason of relative inactivity, and maybe they go a little too fast too soon, or maybe they were sitting on some sort of injury that was bothering them a little bit late last season, but they figured, eh, a winter will clear this up, and then they get back to spring, and they realize that, no, it didn't go away on its own, and then they have to tell someone about it. So this is when all of that happens. And you just kind of have to sit and hope that you can get through spring roughly intact because the games don't matter. You don't really care if you win or if people play particularly well. You just kind of want to get to opening day more or less with the roster that you brought into February and March. One of the things about that, and I, I agree with you, like you, I'm I'm team agnostic, but I look forward to certain players And this is another Yankee, just coincidentally, but you can say to yourself, if you're not personally Troy Tulowitzki or Troy Tulowitzki's doctor, well, he's had a long offseason to rest and rehabilitate. Everything will be fine now that it's spring. But of course, it's not always. And Mm -hmm. sometimes those things carry over. Now he's looked pretty good this spring. So he's not a perfect example, but he's been that example in the past. No, it's not over four months or however long a rest a player might not have had. It doesn't always solve an issue if there's, say, an undetected tear in there that just isn't going to heal no matter what you do. Right. So you're, you're right. It's frustrating. At the same time, I was thinking about what you said about kind of the wastefulness of it being in spring training. And, you know, back a few weeks ago on my own show, I was talking 
about what was essentially a, a career-ending injury to the Hall of Fame shortstop and sometimes second baseman, Rabbit Marinville, in that he slid home in a spring training game and he got tangled up with the catcher, happened to be a Yankees catcher, actually, and broke his leg super badly. Like, part of it was essentially scattered behind third base, and another part of it was at home plate. It was <laughs> it was a really grotesque injury. Now, it happens that he was, I think, over 40 at that point, so he'd kind of wrung all the talent that he could have out of his career. He was such a good glove that he was able to play into his 40s. But I don't know if there would have been a good time to have an injury like that is what I'm trying to say. It's, it was certainly wasteful. And, and the effort of trying to take out the catcher in an exhibition game seems, especially today when we've basically or 100% outlawed that, it seems especially tragic. But I, I just don't know if, if it had happened in August, it would have been any different. Yeah. And of course, if it's going to take some finite amount of time to come back, then you hope that it happens now as opposed to August or September or October. Exactly. So speaking of Yankees pitchers who have caused cannonades, Sonny Gray made some comments to the Athletics' Eno Saris about why he struggled with the Yankees, or at least perhaps one factor that he says may have been responsible. So he says the Yankees love sliders. Sliders are a great pitch. The numbers say slider is a good pitch, but you might not realize how many bad counts you're getting in while throwing all those sliders. They wanted me to be Masahiro Tanaka, and I'm way different from him. I can't command my slider that well. I want to throw my slider in the dirt with two strikes, and that's about it. I don't have that type of slider like Tanaka's slider. His slider, the catcher will catch it, and the batter will swing and miss. If I get a swing and miss, the catcher is blocking it in the dirt. When I try to throw sliders for a strike, I get around it, and it's just a spinning pitch. I don't know how people throw sliders for strikes that are still tight, good pitches. He went on for a while. For all I know, he is still talking about (laughs) sliders somewhere. He had a lot to say on the subject of sliders. Essentially, what he is saying is that his slider is not like Tanaka's slider. It's not such a great slider. He wants to throw it this one way. He is implying that the Yankees were telling him to throw it all the time or to throw it the way that Tanaka threw it. And that's interesting because there's certainly a lot of research that is suggesting that sliders are extremely effective pitches. Certainly, they have the highest whiff rates of any commonly used pitch type. And so you're seeing lots of guys say, yeah, sliders are good. The the Patrick Corbin kind of transformation where you just suddenly double down on a slider if you have a good one and you can improve your performance. And I came across all sorts of stories of that type while working on the book because this is one of those partially analytics-driven changes. So I know that the Yankees are all over that stuff, and I don't doubt that they told Sonny Gray that sliders are good and that he should throw more sliders, but I am kind of curious to hear the other side of the story. The Yankees tend not to talk about these things so much, so I don't know if we ever will, but it would sort of surprise me if they said sliders are good, therefore everyone who has a slider should throw a slider constantly, as opposed to (laughs) taking into account that all sliders are not created equal and that Sonny Gray may not have been comfortable doing what Masahiro Tanaka does. He was like one minute from being like, sliders aren't even a real thing. They're a myth. (laughs) Steve Carlton was a lie. (laughs) Ron Guidry was a knuckleball pitcher. I mean, <laughs> and there's no such thing as a screwball either. Don't tell me about Fernando Valenzuela. Don't. He was a deep state plot. I, I was actually very curious about your particular perspective on this, having done the book and having addressed this kind of thing where a player and an organizational philosophy might come into collision. And you see this at different times in baseball and in other sports too, where a coaching staff or now an analytics staff 
will try to shape the talent to a theory of playing. And the problem is that the personnel that they have may not match that theory. Mm -hmm. So this is my question. If he is being accurate and, and honest, and, and Bill Baer published a nice analysis of this in terms of what his uh, Brooks pitches were identified as, and it doesn't really look like he had thrown dramatically more sliders, and he was actually more successful with sliders than he had been in some other seasons, especially in, in terms of, of power production, because with the A's, people were hitting them over buildings. <laughs> but So the question I have is, to what extent are organizations trying to shove an idea down a player's throat when if the player's not comfortable, it's just not going to be productive? And clearly, in this case, it was not. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a fine line because sometimes you do have to kind of lean on a guy to get him to change something that he's been doing his whole career if it's not working so well anymore, particularly if he's been pitching fairly effectively however he was pitching. I talked to some people while working on the book who said, you know, we have these plans for players or for pitchers where we want to trade for this guy and we think, oh, if he just threw this pitch a little more, or threw this pitch in a different way, he might be better. But you can't forecast the player's willingness to make that change. Maybe you can try to get a feel for what he's like as a personality, but it's really hard to tell how that meeting is going to go. So you can look at the spin rates and the pitch types and you can project that way, but you can't necessarily project that conversation where you have to convince the guy to do the thing you want him to do. And I heard from multiple people that, well, it's always easier to have that kind of conversation, of course, if the player has been struggling, because then he's going to be open to doing something different just out of self-preservation. So it would not surprise me if the Yankees wanted him to do something that he was not entirely on board with, but it would surprise me if they went about it in such a blunt way where they said, sliders are good therefore everyone must throw sliders all the time even if they don't feel like throwing sliders even if it's affecting the way that they're pitching because they don't have the confidence to to do this they don't believe that they can or should do this so that would be strange i think I, i'm sure that has happened many times and probably still happens from time to time but i think a big part of this whole player development revolution is taking each individual players strengths and needs into account and trying to make the most of his skills as opposed to just forcing him into this box that you've decided he should fit in so i'm gonna guess this is not a perfect representation of what happened or that <laughs> even if it is there was probably more to sunny grace struggles than just being told to throw more sliders and not wanting to throw more sliders because a lot was going wrong for him and it was somewhat mysterious why he was struggling so now that he has advanced one explanation, it's sort of tempting to say, aha, that's what it was all along. But I think it's probably more complex than that. I also wonder when they tried to install the Yankees software on Sonny Gray, because <laughs> yeah. you'll recall that they acquired him mid-season 2017. Right. And now some of this has got to be differences between pitching in the aforementioned bandbox that is the current Yankee Stadium mm -hmm. and with the Oakland A's at the Coliseum, which has often been an extreme or at least a very heavy pitcher's park. But his home run rate jumped up immediately. In fact, it more than doubled to 1.5 per nine. And I, I realize this is small sample stuff. We're talking about 65 and a third innings. But... Still, it was notable that it jumped up, even as he was still effective. And I wonder 
if you're a team that acquires somebody in the midst of a pennant race, it's different if it's off season and it's developmental, as you were pointing out, like, gosh, you know, we were looking at this guy and if he would just practice this skill, he would be a more effective pitcher. But I don't know if you do that in July or August. Mm -hmm. So were they trying to push that right at the very beginning or did they wait until he struggled or there's a whole chicken and egg thing here that i'd be very curious to hear about in more granular detail yeah well everyone in cincinnati must be saying no one say sliders around sunny (laughs) don't even bring it up they're small hamburgers they're just (laughs) small hamburgers no need to be afraid of them (laughs) right So I wanted to talk a little bit about what I've been working on this week because I think that you are one of the best there is when it comes to writing about baseball history and finding ways to tie it to the present. And that is what I have been trying to do myself in a way this week. I'm in the midst of this three-part series about scouting and player evaluation and how it used to work and how it's evolved in the past 15 years or so. And this was actually prompted by the podcast in an indirect kind of way, as many things have been. At some point on some episode, I don't even know when it was, I just wondered aloud, hey, wouldn't it be nice if teams would just put their old scouting reports out there? You know, (laughs) once it's been long enough that there's no competitive advantage, they're not giving away any really valuable secret or proprietary knowledge. Just put your old scouting reports out there in public so that we can all enjoy them and maybe do some analysis with them. And I know there are some that are available at the Hall of Fame site, which is nice, but we haven't seen a, a full archive of a team's scouting reports over a long period. And then in my inbox, that's exactly what showed up not too long after that. Someone (laughs) who had been with a team, in this case, the Cincinnati Reds, sent me an archive of about 73,000 scouting reports from 1991 to 2003, about 60,000 pro reports and about 13,000 amateur reports, which is just a, a wealth of information, a treasure trove of info that, to my knowledge, has never been available for any kind of public analysis. So on Monday, part one of the series, Rob Arthur and I did a, a deep dive and tried to crunch some numbers and see what can we learn about scouting and about how it used to work from this information. And then Wednesday morning, early part two goes up or went up, and that's about some case studies and tracing four players who had many reports in the Reds database to see how they differed from what the scouts forecasted for them and also talking to one exemplary Red scout. And then part three on Friday will be about the present and future of scouting and how things have changed since then. So I'm really enjoying working on this, and it seems like people are enjoying reading about it, and I'm wondering what, if anything, it prompted in you as you read it, because you have written many times about players who have ended up going off the rails at some point and turning into something that they weren't supposed to turn into, sometimes (laughs) in a positive way, but often in sort of a a negative way. And, And this is a window into at least what a team thought of players at a a certain point in their career, which is really fascinating to me. It makes me almost think, and I know that this isn't true, I don't think this is what you were going for, that scouting doesn't exist. Like maybe in the moment scouting exists where a scout can give you a snapshot of a player at the moment they are seeing them. Though though even then I started to doubt because there was a, a report that you quoted in part one 
where somebody said Derek Jeter had a below average arm or, or something right. like that, which was like the best part of his defensive game. It certainly wasn't that he had above average range, not to, not to <laughs> go down that, that road again, but Gratuitous. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think at this point we can just talk about his limited range in the Marlins front office and not in terms of ground boss, but there, there were certain things that popped up that, that didn't seem real. And then there were other things that almost were too enthusiastic and, and were a sales job. And I, I realize this is maybe not the best example, but you opened up with Junior Griffey, who mm-hmm. was going to leave at that time Seattle and go over to the Reds. And the scouting reports that you quote aren't so much scouting reports as tourist <laughs> brochures. Yeah. Ken Griffey Jr. has sparkling beaches and fine dining <laughs> because that's that's all. They're the equivalent of the wolf in the old Tex Avery cartoons where he sees the torch singer and they're just going, woo, woo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring on, bring them on. Yeah. And- I, I felt for those scouts who had to write those reports because, you know, Griffey was just coming off one of the almost top 10 decades of your 20s of any player in the 20th century. So it you almost must have felt silly to write a Ken Griffey Jr. report. He's been an MVP. He's won 10 consecutive gold gloves at that point. So it, it seems almost unnecessary. Just, hey, we all know who Ken Griffey <laughs> Tudor is. Why do we have to go through this exercise? On the other hand, they really could have offered some value if they had been able to project that he was just about at the end of his rope at that point. And they were giving him 70s and 75s and 80s across the board because he was Ken Griffey Jr. But really, he had only one star-level year left before his career descended into injuries and ineffectiveness. And, you know, if they could have saved the Reds from making that trade and giving up Mike Cameron, I mean, it seems so long ago that it, it hardly matters maybe, but if they had been able to forecast that he's great, he's been great, but he's not going to be great for a lot longer. That would have been very valuable, but also imagine being in that position and having to make that call when Ken Griffey Jr. seems to be at the peak of his powers. If you could recognize, be the first to perceive that he was slipping, that'd be really valuable, but that's a lot to ask. Well, this is why I'm talking about scouting in the moment, because part of what happened with Junior Griffey was he got fragile. And maybe there were other signs that maybe that I don't know if they reported on or not that they didn't see, such as if, if someone could have said, objectively, he is getting a little slower. He mm-hmm. may not be an elite center fielder for that much longer, that kind of thing. But if you put someone in an MRI machine or a CT scanner, you're still only going to get a look at the condition of their body right now. What is going to happen down the road is still a thing that science hasn't quite figured out, mm-hmm. or there would be other more urgent things than baseball, like looking for markers for Alzheimer's or diabetes or or anything like that. So in a sense, it lets them off the hook because, again, they're being asked to, as you said, evaluate an MVP level player at the level he's in an MVP. Mm-hmm. What was more interesting to me was, and you and Rob attempted to do this, is what you do with this data in aggregate. And it would be neat if you didn't have 70,000, but, and I would pity you, you'd need a staff. This this would be like, you know, assembling the Warren report or, or worse. But, you know, to get 28 or 30 teams worth of that kind of information, pool them all, compare the results on the same players and see if you could come up with some kind of science of projection. But even that, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would be viable 
because of this other fascinating thing you uncovered, which is a, a cover your butt kind of thing, which mm-hmm. is that all the scouts tended to push players into the middle because they didn't want to go out on a limb and be like, hey, this Rod Carew guy, he can really hit. It was always just like, yeah, he's pretty good. Yep. Just pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think people have read this and some people judging by tweets I've seen or comments have found the takeaway to be that scouts are bad at scouting or at least were bad at scouting and that this was all kind of a, a crapshoot to a certain extent. And, and certainly the correlations between the scouts' ratings and the career outcomes are pretty low. That is undeniable. But I think that is more a reflection on the difficulty of the job than it is the incompetence of the scouts. I mean, certainly there were scouts who were not great at their jobs. There are people who are not great at every job. We did find some evidence of racial bias, which is perhaps not surprising. And hopefully that's something that has receded since. I think scouting on the whole keeps getting better. And I'll be talking about that in part three. But It's also just really difficult for the reasons you're saying. I mean, it's hard enough to tell how good a guy is right now if you don't have the benefit of some advanced technology or a stat line or something. I mean, we could probably be plopped down in front of major league players, and if we didn't recognize who they were, we might not be able to say how good they actually are today, let alone college players, minor leaguers, high school players. So that's part of the job. That's difficult enough. And then to look at a high school or college player and say, this is what he'll be in five years, this is what he'll be in 10 years, when you can't see him face that kind of competition, it's just a really difficult thing. And there are always going to be many misses and just about as many misses as hits. And so I have sympathy for the scouts in that sense. On the other hand, it does seem like there were some ways in which they were approaching this that possibly were ripe for reform. And so this database takes us right up to the onset or the the widespread onset of the Moneyball movement. And obviously things have changed in the past 15 plus years. And and it's still difficult and teams are still wrong about players all the time, but maybe a little less often than they used to be. Sometimes though they did get it right or very often they did get it right. And I Mm -hmm. keep thinking of Yogi Berra who the Yankees signed at least sight unseen by their front office. A scout must have seen him in St. Louis when he was an amateur and was able to overlook the fact that he kind of you know looked like an orangutan crossed with a, a penguin or, or something <laughs> of, of that nature because when he got out of the war, he was signed and then basically went into the Navy and fired some rockets at the, the French coast during the various invasions. I believe it was D-Day, actually, and not the uh, the mm-hmm. south of France invasion. But he went to the Yankees' front office in New York after being mustered out. He shows up in his sailor suit, and he goes to Larry McPhail, who was running the franchise, said, you know, hi, I'm Lawrence Peter Barra, or, or whatever he, he said at that point. And McPhail's reaction was, no, you're not. No, we we spent whatever we spent 500 bucks on you on this. And yet someone must have understood well enough to overlook the odd body type, Mm -hmm. not to mention the odd body type of Kirby Puckett or the the all the various physiognomies that succeed at playing baseball. Heck, Wilson, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and projected that these guys could play. So, no, it's not that scouts are bad. It's just futurism. Projecting things in general is next to impossible. And as I said before, when you're talking about the human body, it gets really, really hard. 
I, I think in general that they, they do know what they're talking about. It's just, like I said, extrapolation is, is difficult. And let me give you one other example of that, mm-hmm. that I was thinking about, and it's fortunate that this fellow is in your pile of reports, but Scott Ruffcorn was a pitcher out of Baylor who was the White Sox first round draft pick in 1991. I think he went about 25th in the first round. And the White Sox had been bad in the years leading up to that point. So in the years prior, they had had a number of low picks and they nailed them. Everyone in sequence, their first round picks were Jack McDowell, Robin Ventura, Frank Thomas, and Alex Fernandez. And Ruffcorn was the fifth guy in the sequence, but by then they were getting a little better. So the pick was a little lower. And really, they didn't have another good pick until Aaron Rowand or Gio Gonzalez or, or something. If you want to look at for somebody at, at like the Ventura or uh, Thomas level, you have to go all the way up to Chris Sale in, in 2010. So mm-hmm. the, dra- the draft is hard, as you know. But Ruffcorn went into the minors, pitched exceedingly well with great strikeout walk ratios. And they brought him up to the majors two years later in 93. And he could not pitch in the majors at all, not even slightly. And later there were arm problems, there were other things, but the the Red Scouts evaluating him at the moment that he came up loved him and just as they had every reason to love him because his results were so good. But he went 0-8 with an 8.57 ERA in the majors. And here's the interesting part that I don't think any scout can be expected to deal with. In the minor leagues, his walk rate was 3.5 per nine. Do you know what it was in the majors? No. Nine per nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, in 70 That's innings. problem. This is why he only got 70 innings. He mm-hmm. walked 70 guys in 70.1 innings and was just thrashed, whether as a starter or a reliever. Now, there was, that, that was not physical because it didn't happen at AAA. It didn't happen at AA. It was something peculiar to that fellow going up to the major leagues and dealing with that. Mm-hmm. How can a scout know or anticipate that that is going to be the case? Yeah, it's not just the physical development. It's the mental and emotional development. As Russell Carlton has pointed out at BP, these are adolescent human beings whose brains are still maturing, and that's an unpredictable process. So who knows how they'll be thinking and acting and behaving, let alone how big or tall they'll be or how fast their bat will be, all of that. So It really is difficult. And sure, I am having some fun at some anonymous scouts expenses in this series and pointing out the big misses and Joey Votto, this guy's never going to make it. And I have a, a whole list of kind of funny in retrospect reports of people who were good and the scouts just didn't see it or at least one scout didn't see it for whatever reason. And so you look at one of those reports and you think, well, this is just embarrassing and this person was terrible at their job and look maybe occasionally there was someone who was but I think it's sort of like when we look at a bad call that an umpire makes and you look at that call in isolation and you think this person is underqualified and I could do a better job but really you probably couldn't and if you were put in that situation you'd be even worse and these are the best people who've been selected to do this and they have a whole lot of experience and expertise and maybe sometimes that experience gets in the way of seeing something that they should see but 
probably on the whole, it's pretty helpful. And we would all miss a a Joey Votto now and then if we saw hundreds or thousands of players because these players develop in really unpredictable ways. So it's difficult and we can all point and laugh at those reports. And I know that's fun. And I've had fun myself browsing through the database and thinking, how did they think that about that guy? But it's understandable, I think, given the difficulty. You know, if I can add one thing, there's a book on my shelf right here next to me, not a baseball book. It's called The Experts Speak, and this is the revised edition. It came out in 1998, and I really hope they update it. But it's a compendium of quotations that are wrong. They are all forward-looking and all things like, yeah, the automobile will never catch on, mm-hmm. or and, and this is baseball-related, actually. Babe Ruth is making a huge mistake transiting from the pitcher's mound to the outfield. He's never going to hit enough to make it. You can open, as I just did, to a random page just to give you an example. And there are six quotes in a row from 1966 saying, I see the light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam from Mm -hmm. six different people. This is just hard stuff. I mean, people thought I had talent at one time, not baseball talent, <laughs> but you know, writing and communication talent and that stuff. And look, here I am. You're having to take pity on me and have me on, on your podcast. So, I mean, that's how wrong people can be. But if you can find a used copy of that book out there, I don't know if it's in print anymore, but I highly recommend it because it's instructive to see, like, it's not just people like the amazing Chriswell who screw up predictions. I, I mean, Chriswell predicted that the world would end on August 18th, 1999, and I don't know, maybe it did. And this is all just kind of an illusion, in which case I will feel free to to rob and pillage and, and wreak havoc when we, we get off of here, because there are no consequences. It's all an illusion. But putting that possibility aside, the most educated, trained people screw up all the time when they are asked something as basic as, will it rain tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't scouts get it wrong a lot of the time? Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean that the process couldn't be improved in certain ways, and it has been, as I will detail later this week. But as you said, it would be great to compare to other teams. So if any other former front office members are listening and just happen to be (laughs) sitting on a, a big archive of scouting reports, you know where to find me. I'm here. It's been a pleasure to dig through all of that, and I look forward to digging into it more. But we should take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Sahadev Sharma to talk about the Chicago Cubs. I've been down so long, i got a fear of heights. My mind keeps telling me that something's not right, so I walk in the Alright, so we are joined now, as we often have been in the past, by the man who used to do some of these preview interviews himself, Sahadev Sharma, who now covers the Cubs for The Athletic Chicago. Hey, Sahadev. Hey, how's it going? I, I forgot that this was the podcast that I that I actually did this for. I couldn't even remember that it's changed hands so much. I, I know. Couldn't, couldn't keep track of 
uh, it no. was the same one. It's All right. Process of changing hands <laughs> again. But <laughs> you are uh, joining us today and we're talking about the Cubs and it's been a somewhat disastrous last six months or so for the Cubs <laughs> from a, a PR perspective. And that is both the way that last season ended with the collapsing offense and the early exit from the playoffs and then the lack of spending over the offseason and then the handling of the Addison Russell saga in the wake of Daniel Murphy and Roldis Chapman and then and the Joe Ricketts racist emails and the other Ricketts unpleasant emails. It's just a litany, and I may be leaving some things out. So to what degree have the Cubs brought this on themselves, and how do they get out from under this morass because I have heard from quite a few Cubs fans, at least in our Facebook group, for instance. I don't know if that's representative of Cubs fandom, but I have seen a lot of Cubs fans say it is really hard to root for this team right now. No, you're you're 100% right. I've been getting a lot of feedback like that as well. It's It's been a very negative winter for the Cubs, and, and you didn't even get to the fact that they didn't they weren't big spenders. And granted, they have a huge payroll, and, and you can't call the Ricketts cheap. But you can certainly suggest that they weren't, they're not capitalizing on a window by creating the type of depth that Theo Epstein always harps upon. Every offseason, it's what he talks about, uh, coming up with everything that could possibly go wrong and finding a way to, to patch that hole or, or make sure that, you know, a certain injury won't sink the season. He wasn't able to do that this year. And to have such a strict budget in the middle of a window is a little suspect and, and feels, uh, uh, feels like you're mishandling the off season, but but that's just you know probably the smallest of the PR mishaps that have happened this these past six months. I I don't know how you exactly move past it outside of just playing baseball and hoping that that covers it up because that's that's their best bet because they're not going to go past it just with words. They need to you know you need to see actions from Addison Russell from the Ricketts family to show that you know what's happened is you know they've changed especially with Addison Russell. He needs to show that he's changed. It's really hard to do that, I believe, especially just talking to the media. It's going to be near impossible for him to say the right things. He he came out and, and it was a very clearly very scripted uh, answers when he met the media in a group. When he isn't scripted, he's not a very, you know, he's not the type of person that's going to have a, a very eloquent things to say. He doesn't eat, whether it's baseball or not, he doesn't have a lot to say. And, and sometimes it can seem a little off. You can read that how you want. I read that as someone that may not be, you know, completely contrite for this, for his actions. But, you know, it's up to the Cubs to judge that. And, and they've given him the second chance. I, I completely understand where fans are coming from when they're frustrated with this team. But I guess baseball is the only way it's going to it's going to move past uh, for some people. And for others, that's not going to be enough either. So, Hadev, I know that we can't take what the Ricketts say about the Cubs and how exposed financially they are for granted. We can't take it for granted with any team, really. But given that that is the reason they cite for not being in on major free agents this winter, how damaging has the Jason Hayward contract been both in terms of his lack of production and now checking them in terms of pursuing other high-profile players? Yeah, I would I would say that's on the list, uh, very high up on the list, along with uh, Darvish and Chatwood uh, being unproductive in that first year, completely unproductive, uh, you know, zero war, probably negative if I really looked at it, I'm not sure. And then uh, 
And then you also have to look at the fact that they haven't developed any pitching from the system, which has forced them to go out and get guys like Lester, Darvish, and Chatwood uh, and, and re-sign Hamels. They have three uh, starting pitchers in their rotation making 20-plus million this season, and that's not ideal. That's not how you want to do it. Uh, obviously, they built around offense, but you still don't want three 20-plus million dollar rotation arms. That's just not that's not going to make it work well if you're if you're working with the budget. So it's there. There are multiple aspects here, but you're certainly right. I mean, Jason Hayward has not been what his contract suggests he should be. And you know what? I was for that contract when when they signed him. It was uh, it was a guy that had about a 120 weighted runs created every season and and you you'll take that you'll you'll take that with the defense and the base running and the uh work ethic that he has all those little things that he brings to the field added up to a guy that may have been worth that or maybe it was a slight overpay but either way you could have justified that with the cratering offense it it's really hard to justify that and now he's slowly improved over the years that he's been here to get to about league average, but still, that's that's not enough. And and now he's he's out in right field playing every day. And you could have argued, hey, that that's money that they could have put towards Bryce Harper or traded for J- Giancarlo Stanton last year. Whatever it is, they could have made a move and, and had a more highly productive player, perhaps an MVP caliber player. So certainly, it's it's set them back in in one way. But you could also argue that their biggest deficiency coming into 16 one of their biggest deficiencies was their outfield defense and Hayward really solidified that in 16 the offense was obviously uh, just completely missing in 16 and you know I think he redeemed himself in one way with the with the you know rain out speech or the rain delay speech but certainly that's that's probably not 180 million dollars worth of words yeah so speaking of missing offense what happened down the stretch last season if you look overall at say the team wrc plus for non-pitchers i believe that the 2017 and 2018 cubs weren't actually that far apart but because of the trajectory because home runs were way down although they were somewhat across the league The focus was really on how the offense just kind of cratered late in the season, and Chili Davis, the hitting coach, was made the scapegoat in some circles. He's out. There's a new hitting coach. To what extent do you think it was Davis, and to what extent do you think it was Chris Bryant's shoulder or just other performance-related reasons that weren't under his control and could bounce back this year? Yeah, I think you know you can put a little bit of on little bit of it on Davis. I just don't like putting too much on him because it's really hard to measure what sort of impact he had. But he clearly didn't vibe with the younger players. He didn't have the type of uh, th- there were philosophical differences. I mean, Chris Bryant straight up said that he said, you know, I got along with Chili. You know, he's a good de- guy. He played in the league forever. All the respect for him in the world. But we didn't line up philosophically. And and Chris Bryan has a very specific philosophy of getting the ball in the air, driving the ball, you know, slugging is where it's at, get the ball in the air, find the gaps or put it over the fence. And I, I think when when you're working with a younger generation that thinks like that, it, it's really hard to get them to to buy into what Chili Davis was preaching. But ultimately, it was just they just weren't productive. And you're right, uh, Chris Bryant's injury was huge. Chris Bryant was not Chris Bryant. Go, I, I've said this a thousand times, but go look at his first six weeks. They were otherworldly. He was on pace to be the best player in the National League, and and just you know be it continue to be among the best players in baseball and that shoulder injury just completely sapped him of what he, what he is. And that's a power hitter, a guy that can hit for average, a guy that gets on base. He's the complete package on offense and he 
just wasn't there for the final four months, essentially. Outside of that, they, they hit way too many ground balls. Wilson Contreras did not hit the ball hard the entire second half. They got a little jolt from Daniel Murphy, but uh, that lasted maybe two weeks, and pretty much everyone else wasn't hitting. They, there was no consistency. There, You can't name a single player that was really impressive in September. Even Javi Baez kind of uh, struggled down the stretch. So it was just a complete collapse by the offense. Theo Epstein was quite uh, open about it at the end of the season and, and said that, you know, the offense essentially broke down the stretch and, and they didn't find a way to fix it. You know, they played a lot of games. I want to say it was 44 games in 45 days. That's I mean, that's legitimate. That's you can use that as an excuse. The Cubs are not currently using it as an excuse, but it is something that was real and did impact them. I, I was there for most of that. And it was it was exhausting as a reporter. I can't imagine what it's like as a player uh, showing up every day and, and not getting that just that one day to re-energize yourself. That one day where you're not coming to the ballpark, where you get to do whatever it is, whether it's spend time with your family or lays on the couch and watch Netflix. I think that's important <laughs> for these guys. So to not have that down the stretch impacted them there's no doubt about it and and you know and i think they're going to take that and and say hey every game matters there's going to be a there's going to be a sense of urgency this season and and that's been kind of the focus of the offseason kind of bring that edge back that they had in 16 that sense of urgency where every game whether it's april or september matters but the offense it was really jarring to see the difference in the second half and, and it was mostly just a complete lack of power which was there for most of the season but really was gone down the stretch and uh, a few key injuries and just guys that you expected to be superstars like Wilson Contreras not showing up. I feel a little weird now asking about something I feel kind of positive about with the Cubs because I, I mean the, the overall vibe really is of disappointment and feeling let down, but one of the few Cubs who was half decent down the stretch and really was mostly kind of great from April on, he had a miserable April, was Anthony Rizzo. And one of the little details about the Cubs that I really do enjoy is how little Anthony Rizzo strikes out for a power hitter. And when you watch his at-bats, you can see him actually choke up with two strikes, which is an old-fashioned approach that so few players seem to have nowadays. They don't get as defensive with two strikes as they used to. Is that an innovation that he came up with on his own? And do you see it kind of carrying over to any other Cubs? Yeah, it's something that he started, I mean, you I'd have to look at the exact year. I want to say it was around 14 or 15. There was a year where he w just wasn't getting uh, the numbers that he wanted. It was, it, I remember the peripherals were fine, but his batting average was just garbage and, and he just couldn't, he, he wasn't hitting lefties at all. And that offseason, he completely revamped his mechanics and his two strike approach. And part of that was choking up. And he looks like a completely, he completely changed who he was as a hitter. It was really impressive to see that, that transformation. Part of it was, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, Mike Borzello sat, took him aside during, uh, during a flight home. I think it was the final game of the season and kind of said, Hey man, it's up to you this offseason. What kind of player you want to be? I have some ideas of what things we can work on, uh, ways you can kind of uh, address your weaknesses. And, and they kind of built a plan around that. And, and he kind of turned into a different player. I, I, I want to say it was Borzello. Hopefully I'm getting that, remembering that correctly, but it, you can see that, that Rizzo is a completely different player at the plate compared to that, previous season what i believe it was 14 so 
yeah, he's he's someone that Joe kind of preaches. Look at that two strike approach. Look at how he is. You don't lose power if you're the right type of hitter. If you choke up, I want to say that in the 15 playoffs, he hit a, a two strike homer against the Cardinals, a big two strike homer that he was choking up on. And it was a bomb like the guy can still hit for power with two strikes. One of the better two strike hitters in the game now. Whether it it's for everyone on the team, I don't. I'm not sure about that. Uh, you know, like I don't think you're going to see Chris Bryant choking up, but Chris Bryant is also not terrified with two strikes. He's he's a great two strike hitter as well. A guy that I think he could work with is someone like Kyle Schwarber, who could really use help in situational hitting. You're not going to see Javi Baez choke up with <laughs> two strikes, but you know, I, I think it, to each their own, and there are different ways to find success. I, I think we've seen that. Uh, so you know, we watch so much baseball. There's no one way to make it work, but it certainly is working for Rizzo. I think Joe would love to see more of his hitters do that for who it may work with i'm not 100 percent sure but yes it's definitely something that madden would love to see his players uh, adopt more of his players adopt because two strike approach situational hitting is a big thing that matters to them i want to say they were the you know high leverage situations if you look at that according to fan graphs i believe they were the worst team in baseball last year that's something that they've been focusing on for years now just coming up big with men on base and and you know it, it's hard to really know exactly what determines makes a, a player good at that you'd like to think that if you're good at in one situation you're good in all of them but for some reason the cubs at times have struggled in those situations and and that's something that really like to rectify you mentioned wilson Contreras's power outage and that's something that the cubs would love to correct but his framing issues is uh, another thing that has really held him back he was among the worst framers in baseball last year if not the worst and if you want to talk about pitching improvements yes it would be better if the pitchers pitched better but it would also be nice if Contreras received better and got them some extra strikes I know they've worked with him before they've tried to get him to pay more attention to that aspect of his game but you just wrote an article about how he has tried to address both the power and the framing so what's the outlook for Contreras this year yeah, I'm I'm of the wait and see. You know, he he said that his brother made a point this uh, his brother is a catcher in the in the Brave system, a highly thought of catcher in the Brave system, William, and he told him to uh to do a quarter turn. He was kind of stiff and sticking his hand out and uh and when catching the ball, so he, he was kind of be softer with his hands, a kind of a quarter turn when he catches the ball. And and you know, it's something that we've probably all heard uh, when discussing framing and, and I'm sure, and I know Mike Borzello has told him these things, but maybe you just needed to hear it in a different voice in a, from a coming from a different person. And, and he, and he, he seems to have taken it to heart. Wilson doesn't like to talk about his deficiencies in public. He's not the type that's going to, you know, when a reporter approaches him, he's not the type to say, yes, these are all my weaknesses and this is what I struggle with and and here's how I'm working to fix it. But he was a little bit more open about it when when chatting about it recently. So so you'd like to see that he's he's taking steps to try and correct these things. Whether he actually can correct it is is what remains to be seen. I, you know, I know he works on it hard. I've written about that a lot. I wrote a big piece about it last All-Star break that that was really the final thing that he needed to fix was the framing and he'd be the best catcher in baseball. Of course, the power went away and, and that kind of, I mean, the offense as a whole in the second half went away for him. 
So that that kind of took him out of the mix for best catcher in baseball. But I think he can get to that point as long as he's average at framing. He he believes he fixed a mechanical flaw, which was his he was loading late, and that led to his lack of power. He just couldn't hit fastballs last year, which you know someone like him should be killing fastballs, especially in the zone, and he just wasn't doing it. So I think the combination of that, and if he's if he's making real strides with framing, if he can just get to average, like I said, this is a superstar catcher, and you'd love to see him. Him not be a big detriment uh, as far as framing goes. To get back to something you said earlier about their failure to develop pitching internally, to some extent that was kind of planned, right? When Theo Epstein came in, his philosophy when they were still down and getting the high draft picks was, we're going to go for position players, we'll find pitchers somewhere. And that's kind of what happened. As you said, they've had to spend to do it. And on paper, they have a really good rotation, but the replacements are not necessarily coming along. If a Darvish gets hurt again, if a Cole Hamels looks more like he did in the first half last year than the second half, where do they turn first and how well do they survive that kind of scenario? Well, probably the first guy is Mike Montgomery, who uh, they they love, they trust, who who has filled all sorts of roles for them over the past couple of years. Uh, that's probably the first guy. Tyler Chatwood maybe second, unless he has a brilliant spring and they're they're able to trade him. I think that'd be a bit of a surprise if they're able to trade him without eating money. But you know, teams get desperate with injuries and things like that. So who knows? But I think those are the two guys. They'll both be on the major league roster in all likelihood that can uh, fill in for a starter. Alec Mills is another guy. Uh, Edbert Alzale has had a kind of a slow spring because he, he slipped and, and kind of hurt his, uh, his side a little bit, but I believe he should be ramping up and be ready uh, for the season. And that's probably their top pitching prospect. Those, those guys are probably your primary names, you know, <laughs> depth names always pop up over the spring and into the season, but those are the guys that, you know, it hardly ideal names, but I, I think especially with Montgomery, they've, they've made it work over the years. And if Chatwood, I, I hate to take away anything from spring, but I think a lot of Chatwood issues are confidence issues. And his second outing was really nice. He has great stuff. He didn't walk anyone. He was striking guys out. I think if he has his confidence back, if he can be a, a, just average, that would be so huge for them, even out of the bullpen. That's a nice, uh, that's an arm that can eat some innings, especially the way pitchers are used nowadays. Eating two, three innings out of the bullpen is no longer looked as just like a mop up guy. Like that's quality. That's a quality relief arm now. So if he can be a, a quality backup starter, that that helps them as well. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the pitching depth is all has been an issue for as long as I can remember this team be competing since the, in the Theo era. They do a great job of bringing in under, you know, undervalued starters. They've, they've they look at their team ERA. It's been great during the competitive years. But you're the as far as developing pitching and finding that guy that can be a stalwart in the in the rotation and be young and controllable, they don't have him. And I think that's probably the one big criticism that people inside the org even have of the team and something that they, they believe they're, they're addressing and, and hope that will kind of pop this year. I know that you Darvish is back and is by all accounts looking good and looking like you Darvish. You've seen him. How has he looked to you? Well, uh, First of all, he looks like a different person as far as the way he interacts with us. Uh, he used a translator last year, very rarely made, you know, I don't want to read too much into body language. I don't know if he, I know he was uncomfortable because he's told us uh, that he wasn't comfortable 
uh, in Chicago yet. He just he put a lot of pressure on himself as far as uh, the contract, and he wanted to make a big impression. He's coming off a disastrous World Series. All those things, I think, added up, and he put way too much pressure on himself. And you know what? I'm, he just didn't – I think winning over the media helps too. He's, he's joking with us. He, he has a big smile on his face. Everyone feels more comfortable around him. So he's he's also more comfortable. He he's cracking jokes about his stuff, about what he wants to accomplish, all, all these things. I, I think it's I think it's really good for him to be at ease like that. But also the stuff looks great. He's touching ninety seven. The his last outing, the slider was working. All his pitches were working. He was throwing a splitter. I mean everything. That, I mean stuff that I haven't seen him throw. He was. He was it was really working well and he was ultra confident and I think that's a huge thing that the he was he was so confident that he was talking about how it's his best stuff and he expects himself he expects big things from himself he's never really seemed the little that we've gotten to know him in Chicago he's never seemed like the type, type of guy who's full of confidence like that so you bring that combine the confidence with the stuff and and you're talking about a guy that could be a huge impact. I mean, imagine you Darvish pitching at his best for, you know, 25 of his 31 starts. If he can stay healthy for that and he's, you know, the guy that we've all known he can be for majority of that time, that's that's a scary thought I think for the NL Central. So I, I'm still a lot of these. I've said it already with I said it with Wilson and I'll say it for most of these guys. Very few of them. The guys that didn't perform last year. I'm, am I going to be all in on? But he's a guy that I'm, I'm pretty positive about and feel really good about just seeing how he he's performing and how he's acting in the spring. One of the strange artifacts of having Joe Madden as a manager occurred last year in that Albert Almara played virtually every day, but only started about 50% of the time and also only played nine innings about 50% of the time. And he was one of those many Cubs players who had a terrific first half. He hit about 320 and then just vanished the rest of the way. And I wonder if his attitude has been affected by that, if he's adjusted well to that kind of weird role that he's in, and if it has affected him developmentally at all. I would say that you're not wrong when you suggest that perhaps players Elmora, Hap, Schwarber, other guys have been affected uh, developmentally because of the depth of this team. But that's also the strength of this team. They they have to use that depth as much as they can, play the matchups. But it's something that Joe has been talking about since 2016 when Dexter Fowler re-signed unexpectedly and suddenly there was a log jam and who's going to play where and how do you find playing time obviously that was answered when when Kyle Schwarber got injured in 2016 but year after year we've had this discussion with Joe how does this impact younger players how do are you stunting their development and he's admitted I, I can't deny that this may stump someone's development, but it's what's best for the team. And and I understand that. I think I, I think it makes logical sense. You have to do what's best for the team currently when you're in a, you know, they're obviously contending and they're trying to win now. Uh, you, you have to maybe put aside someone's development. So, yeah, there there is some development issues going on. I honestly, with Almora, 
uh, at least last year, that first half felt like smoke and mirrors to me. I watched those games. You can look at the Babbitt for the first half, and I know you can't just go up Babbitt, but he's a ground ball guy. He doesn't have a ton of power. He doesn't walk. He was finding holes like crazy in the first half, and and it just it, it got worse in the second half as far as the quality of contact and, and what he was doing. So it, everything fell apart in the second half, but... Oh man, I, I think he's. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's a 320 hitter. Although I have been impressed with the, you know, just how he's come into camp and and the way he's driving the ball. Again, it's so hard to take away stuff from spring, but he looks like a he looks like a different type of player. I would I would say that he, one of him or Hap are going to try and grab that starting role. But Hap is already playing more infield this winter. I mean, this spring and, uh, sorry, Chicago, it's still winter. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, you, you're going to see, I think Joe will, will try and get him out there as much as possible, but Joe's admitted, listen, these guys are going to play. Uh, I'm going to play the matchup still. I'm going to put the guy out there that makes the most sense. Just if, unless Elmore is just red hot and just seeing righties well and, and has to play absolutely is just forcing himself into the lineup. You're going to see Joe play the lineups. You're going to see Ian Happ in center field. Occasionally you're going to see Jason Hayward occasionally and in, in center field and, and maybe Zoe will play right field. Uh, that's just how Joe Madden works. Unless someone just isn't playing well at all, or someone else is just incredibly hot and forces themselves into the lineup, then, then you're going to see these guys get platooned outside. It's, you know, I mean, we know the names that don't get platooned and it's, it's basically Rizzo, Bryant, probably Baez is in that uh, conversation now. And Wilson Contreras outside of that, I don't know who, who else uh, is getting an everyday job. And if, and if I had to pick one guy to kind of get into that level, I'd say Schwarber is a better bet than Al Moore or Hat. We were all waiting for Baez to break out, but we thought if and when he did, it would be because he improved his plate discipline. And of course, that did not happen at all. Yeah. He had the, the same walk-to-strikeout ratio as ever. He continued to chase a lot of pitches outside the strike zone. He swung even more often than he had before. And yet, he was one of the best players in the National League. So is that a repeatable thing? Is this something that he can do where no one else can, seemingly? Or is there going to be some regression or, alternatively, some long-awaited improvement in plate discipline well he does want to have better plate discipline he wants and i think it's less about i want to walk more and more about i need to know the situation better and know how this pitcher is going to attack me in this situation he needs to realize he's a dangerous hitter and that when there are men in base or in certain situations he's not going to get the pitches he wants to see and he needs to kind of you know dial it back a bit you don't want i mean joe loves to say this but you don't want to take the aggressiveness out of certain players because that's their strength and i think javi's kind of proven that that that's his strength he's a, he's a special talent he's a rare talent and you don't want to change him i know you know we're all into the numbers and and you dig into the numbers and it doesn't add up for hobby but it works when when for some reason it works and and you, I think you just let him play. You don't try and change him too much. But he he does understand that there are situations that he needs to kind of use his brain a little bit more. And and he's a very smart player. You can't under undervalue that either. He really understands baseball. And, and there are things that he does on the field that nobody else can. So you kind of just let him play. And I guess ultimately, when if you're asking, do I think he's going to take a step forward, be static, take a step back? I think overall the numbers may may take a step back. But I also, I also hesitate to doubt Hobby. <laughs> he he does things that I'm I'm shocked by on a pretty regular basis, 
and and can he take another step forward? Sure. If he if he's really dedicated to having a, a, a more you know patient approach in a sense or or a more uh, intelligent approach, then then yeah, the sky's the limit for this guy. And and I you know defensively, offensively, on the bases, he does so many things that that make your jaw drop. So so why why start doubting him? He's always it it was always a slow burn with him. There was no doubt that that if it was going to come together, it would take a little while. It wasn't, he wasn't going to be like Chris Bryant or, or some of the younger stars that we see all across baseball that come up and, and everything just works because they know how to do everything. It was supposed to take a while and took a little while and now it's coming together. So uh, perhaps there is more there that he does take another step forward. Maybe he really has figured some things out and you're just going to see a superstar shortstop type player going forward. I, I, I mean, I, I love watching the guy play. There's there's really no one more exciting. Uh, so when with him, I sometimes try not to look too much at the numbers. I, it's it's not what I do normally, but there's something about him that makes me say there's something more going on here than that than I can measure just by looking at you know the stats. This is Ben Zobris last year under contract. You mentioned Ian Happ before. And I keep wondering if Ian Happ is kind of a duck-billed platypus in that he is kind of being groomed to be Zobris too, yet whereas he has the patience, I don't know if he really has the switch hitting, and he doesn't necessarily have the ability to play up the middle. And when you said, oh, Happ's playing more infield this season, kind of my antennae went up because... That's not something he's real good at, and I don't know if it's a great scenario for the Cubs if he is going to be deployed there a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I don't disagree. He, uh, you know, it's kind of we've been talking about this uh, since he came up that oh he's very versatile, and and we we kind of joke well there's a difference between versatility and just playing a bunch of positions. You know, <laughs> like you, to be versatile you have to actually like Zobris is good at all those positions and and I think I I've really appreciated how good Zobris is after watching you know two months of Daniel Murphy at second base. So you you really start to appreciate okay this guy I mean you you lose. Uh, I think when you watch Javi every day at second base, you have this insane, uh, insanely high level of what to expect from a second baseman. Then when you when you watch Murphy, you, you, it kind of gets recalibrated. It's like, oh wait, <laughs> Zobris is fine there. He's he's probably averaged slightly above at times. Uh, Hap is Hap's a, a work in progress is probably uh, the right way to put it. He's a, he wants to play more second base because he knows that that can get him into the lineup more especially the first month with Addison Russell suspended and, and there'll be more opportunity to play at second base with Javi at shortstop every day. So there's there he's looking for a way to get into the lineup and and Joe's happy to have him be willing to play all over the place. Uh, he's going to play all over the outfield and 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 second base mostly and, and maybe some third base but you know that's that's not going to happen very often. I think Chris Bryant's locked in there as long as he's healthy. So I mean I guess is the question what what's he going to be? Is he <laughs> is this a guy that can actually handle this? I yeah. Does he have a role going forward? Really, where he fits naturally? Because right now there's not a good place to kind of put him. Yeah. No. I I think you're right. Theo Epstein in uh, November or December said uh, this this season is kind of a reckoning, and I and I feel like it's 
it fits in so many ways that word and and it's kind of where we're trying to figure out what ian happ is what what is he gonna be is he i have i have certain people that i talk to that just love him because of his work ethic and because this guy's trying to uh, fix every hole that he has and he and he's so dogged and trying to figure out how to you know hit the high heat or lay off of it a combination find that happy medium where he's not taking advantage of up in the zone make sure his switch hitting is is really you know he's actually a switch hitter instead of a guy that just goes up there and swings from both sides of the plate he works hard at his defense and he has improved center field he was that first year that he was up it was hard to watch him in center field and he he got to you know maybe slightly below average last year in center field but there's there's a lot of work to be done there and i don't know what he is going forward and what role he holds there's so many guys trying to find their way on this team Happ and Elmore are two of them that I, the jury is out for me as far as what their future holds and what they can be. Happ is trying to be that super utility guy to, to try and find playing time, but I think he'd love to find a one spot where he, where he belongs. Ultimately, that's probably left field for him being realistic, but there's no doubt that he's going to try and find a way to play anywhere because that's what it takes to play right now on this team. To give you a good answer, I don't, I'm not sure if I have one <laughs> because I just don't, I don't I don't know what he's going to be, and it's really hard to to say. Yeah, he he's going to find a role uh, at second base going forward when Zobrist moves on, and and whether it's retiring or finds another team, but that's probably not likely because there are other uh, infielders coming up through the system that that they're high on as well. All right, so last pre-prediction question for you so that you can pick up your car that is currently being repaired and head to spring (laughs) training and do your job, which is reporting about baseball. This one is about the bullpen, which was a concern heading into last offseason. I think people hoped that the Cubs would be more active in upgrading there. They did add Brad Brock. Obviously, that's an area where maybe you can just develop players, and you've done a really good job of writing about the Cubs' cutting-edge player development efforts over the past couple months. Months, which, by the way, please stop for the next three months until my book comes out. Thank you very much. But <laughs> what is the bullpen looking like right now? Is there someone that Cubs fans can really trust? Well, first of all, uh, sorry to disappoint you, Ben, but I have a big uh, piece coming out tomorrow or oh, Wednesday, geez. whenever this is coming out, that, that <laughs> I, I'm excited about. So uh, sorry not about excited. that, Ben. <laughs> but uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it, uh, and uh, most of your listeners will too. Uh, but yeah, the key to the bullpen. Wow. That's it. You know, I, I think it is Brock for that first month. I think he needs to be healthy and pitch like we know he can. Carl Edwards is a big key. I don't think there's, a, you know, people are looking for like a sleeper of some sort. I think, you know, someone like Dakota Meckes could come up during the season and impact the the bullpen. Uh, Alzale, who I mentioned for the rotation, should be a part of the bullpen at some point and impact it. This guy has uh, a great fastball, rising fastball, curveball, you know, a nice combination out of the bullpen. And, you know, if he ends up starting, he'll utilize that changeup more. But but just out of the bullpen, I think he could be pretty nasty. But it, it really comes down to Brock and uh, Strope and Carl Edwards Jr. Those are big names. C-Sheck, uh, guys that most Cubs fans are familiar with. But I, I just don't, you know, there's guys like Tony Barnett, Xavier Cedeno, guys that need to pop and, and perform 
either like they did for parts of last year or or better than they ever have before, which happens all the time out of bullpens. But it's a very it's kind of a mishmash bullpen put together on the cheap because they didn't they weren't going to spend big this offseason. And, and, you know, people want to criticize them for not going after Machado or Harper. I think the biggest thing was not going after a reliever, a dominant reliever that can shut down the eighth or the ninth inning, preferably from the left side. So you had two guys in Britain and, and Miller, and they just didn't pursue them. And these aren't long-term deals that are going to sink your payroll for for a decade. It's two or three years and really one year where you're going over quote-unquote budget. So that that really uh, confused me. But, uh, you know, they had to work with what they what they were given. And, and I think they did a solid job. But I feel like a guy like Brock, Cedeno, Barnett, these should be depth moves when you're in this window of contention uh, and really go aggressively after a guy like uh, Miller or Britain. They didn't. So so they're going to have to rely on those other guys and they have to pray that Morrow comes back healthy. Otherwise, it's going to be another year where the Cubs are aggressively pursuing a high leverage arm come. July, even if Morrow comes back healthy, that may be their priority because I don't know who you look at and say, yep, that's that shutdown lefty out of the bullpen because it's Montgomery, Cedeno, Brian Dunsing, Randy Rosario. None of these guys are strikeout artists, so to say. And uh, we still don't know where uh, Montgomery is going to be because he, he had a little shoulder discomfort and he, he slowed down early in the spring. So it's hard to even see where he's at in his progression as well. All right, so let's end with the prediction as we always do. The Cubs were a 95-win team last year, although you wouldn't know it from the way people experience that season and and talk (laughs) about this team. But we know that Pakoda has caused a kerfuffle this spring with its extremely negative projection for the Cubs, which has become bulletin board material. But other projection systems are quite optimistic about the Cubs. What does Sahadev say? How many wins in 2019? I'm going to go with uh, 92. And I think they're going to be a better team than last year. It just didn't, doesn't break as well for them. Uh, I think the offense is going to be great this year. I really, I'm really uh, optimistic for Bryant, especially. I think 92 is enough to compete for the division. It's going to be a really tough division. That's primarily why I don't have them going 95 plus wins. The division is going to be really hard. I don't know if that's going to be enough to win the division. I think it makes the, they make the playoffs and I expect them to make a run. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to kind of see how the, the final rosters look before I really feel confident about are they going to go deep? And even then I'm not going to feel conf- confident about it. I'm just kind of blindly shooting here like we always are with our predictions, <laughs> but. Yeah, I 92 wins in the playoffs in a very difficult division. I think that's realistic and a fair expectation for a team that should be competing, you know, for years on end. And, and we expect them to be going after a team that we expected to win or compete for multiple World Series that kind of feels like a disappointment at the moment. But maybe that's a, an aggressive uh uh, aggressively negative viewpoint for for many. All right, you can follow Sahadev on Twitter at his name Sahadev Sharma, and you can read him all season long at the Athletic Chicago. Check out all his articles except the ones about player development. Just <laughs> bookmark those and read them later this summer. Thanks, Sahadev. Always good talking to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right, so we will take one more quick break, and we'll be back with Levi Weaver of the Athletic to talk about the Rangers.
Alright, we are back and joined by the Rangers beat writer now for The Athletic Dallas Fort Worth, Levi Weaver. Hey Levi. How's it going? It's going well, and it occurs to me that I think the last time we had you on the show was to talk about the dismissal of Jeff Bannister and what went wrong there and why the Rangers had decided to make a change, so... I suppose we might as well start with the change that they did make and yeah. the hiring of Chris Woodward. So that was a while ago now, but why Woodward and what have been your impressions of him so far? I think as far as the first part of the question as to why Woodward, I think um, I think Michael Young was actually a, a big influence in that decision. He and Woodward were childhood friends, played baseball together when they were kids, and um just a, a lot of respect from from Michael Young when that decision making process was going on, and and so I think they may have waited for him to finish the World Series anyway. But I think there was probably some push from from Young to like just don't make a decision until you talk to this guy. And so I think that the early part of the process that might have been some of it. But having talked to him now a few times, I'm not surprised at all that he nailed the interview process, especially given that the type of transition that they were wanting to make. I mean, we heard a lot about communication. Sort of the whispers last year that, and and even the year before that, well, there's kind of some communication issues, and that was really vague, and a lot of players wouldn't really talk on the record about what that meant, which is ironic because I wanted them to communicate with me, and <laughs> they wouldn't. But this year, I now seeing what Woodward and his staff are doing, I get it. I get what they were wanting to do. All of the coaches, you, know, you talk to players that that are just borderline effusive about the fact that all of the coaches are on the same message and so is the manager and so is the strength and conditioning staff and so are the nutritionists and like everybody is giving them the same message here's what you need to go work on go work on it and this is your goal and then the idea of this is not like a earth shattering idea but the idea of especially in spring training we're not really looking at the results right now we're looking at process so you know joey gallo we need you to shorten your swing just a little so you can hit the ball to the opposite field once in a while so that's your process. If you go out and strike out four times in a game, but we see that you are working on the things we want you to work on, great. That was a successful day. Mm-hmm. Maybe tomorrow you'll get a hit doing it. Uh, you know, no Marmazara. We need you to get the ball in the air more, swing at fewer pitches outside the strike zone. Hey, if if that means an 0 for 4 day, but we can tell that you're doing the right thing, fantastic. Like we'll applaud the process. And they've they've really embraced, as have a lot of teams across the league. I think the you know, the edutronic cameras and the biomechanics. And they've got the coaches that understand that and have studied it and know what they're doing with it. And then they've got coaches that can communicate that really well to the players. And um, yeah. I just had to tell Sahadev not to talk about that stuff until my book comes out. And now I got to tell you, no writing <laughs> right. about player development for a few months. Right, right. <laughs> um, needs I, to come out now. <laughs> all right, get it, get it done. Um, <laughs> I will be happy to read it actually when it, when it's, when it's out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been really good to, and and I know I know we're in the honeymoon process, right? So like, of course, all of the coaches are smiling, like they just got big league jobs, so of course they're happy. <laughs> but it seems like there's a lot more smiling, and it's a lot more easygoing. And is that going to translate to success on the field? I have no idea. I don't know if any of this is going to work. You know, who knows? Maybe in five years we see a trend back to more like authoritarian, disciplinarian coaches because none mm-hmm. of this is working, and everyone is just like playing Fortnite in the clubhouse. I don't know. <laughs> But so far, it's been it's been pleasant to watch, and the players all seem to be on board, and so far, so good. Are you saying then that this wasn't happening last year, that it was more of an authoritarian regime that 
players were disregarding that the coaching staff was less amenable to this new agey kind of stuff. For I'm talking about it sort of vaguely and even a little disparagingly to spare Ben's book. But <laughs> is 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 that the contrast that you're drawing here? I mean, I, I don't know that I would put it in those words. I wouldn't go quite that far. Like maybe maybe authoritarian was the wrong word to use. It, it's not like there was. You know, there there weren't coaches walking around like commanding players to give me twenty push ups or anything, but <laughs> but it did seem a little bit like it was a top down. You know, manager communicates to the coaches, coaches communicate to the players, and then I, you know, I've heard stories where sometimes different coaches would communicate different things to players, and the players were like, guys, like, how about you two go talk about it and figure out what you want to <laughs> tell me, and then let's let's figure it out, and. Yeah, and maybe that's like a one-time thing that happened. I, I don't want to say that that was like a, a systemic issue. But yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of, I, I talked to players that would come out of their preseason meetings, like, you know, here's the goals we've set for you this this year. And they'd walk out and turn to another player or another coach and be like, what was that? Like, wh- what? what? What was any of that? I don't, I don't know what any of that meant. So maybe it's, I don't want to say that, like Jeff Bannister wasn't a bad guy. Like when we would talk outside of you know, the clubhouse, he was very reasonable and even even friendly and he got along like he was very popular in the community did a lot of community events and was you know i I don't want to talk badly about him as a person but i think he kind of came from you would almost expect him to be a football coach i think in the way that he communicated and it just was not a message that all of the players were hearing you know maybe some of them did I, I know there were players that loved Bannister, but it just it was hit and miss, I think. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that they were even disparaging of the player development things that I am not allowed to speak of. But uh, <laughs> but maybe just not so enthusiastic about it either. You know, like you don't have to throw your hands up and call it a bunch of hogwash to just kind of ignore it. And I think that's probably where it was. Like it, there wasn't a complete dismissal of advanced metrics and and biomechanics but there also wasn't just a whole lot of enthusiasm to really dig in and use it to the to the most that it could be used so your recent tweet that just says basically that joey gallo bunted for a single is up to 800 (laughs) likes as we speak right now i ruined my own life i ruined my own life by tweeting just a fact that happened i know I guess, well, you've been through the, the Brady-Spiegel affair, so this is oh, not yes. for you. But, yes, you're right. <laughs> so this is not the first time that Gallo has bunted for a hit, right? He bunted for no, a hit at, yeah. at some point last year, right? But is there going to be a more concerted effort? And, and I'm always interested in whatever's going on with Joey Gallo. So just yeah. uh, if, if Gallo has done anything differently, bunts or otherwise, let us know. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, he did bunt for a single last year. I think by then most of the fans had tuned out because the Rangers were losing a lot of games. So yeah. nobody knew that it happened. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think that is going to be something that he tries to do more often. He has talked about like, you know, as much as batting average isn't ever going to be the statistic that defines him, like it, it bothers him when he hits, you know, 204. And, you know, when you're playing against the Astros and they have like six guys between first and second base, like if you can just take that single, take it. Like that's, that's a good way to increase your on base percentage. And if he was Albert Pujols or David Ortiz, like as an opposing team, I would let him bunt for a single and have an 800 batting average because if he got on base, he'd be really slow. But Gallo's 
a lot faster than people give him credit for. He's, he's actually a threat on the base path, so he's not somebody that you just want to let get on first base because he can steal a base here and there if he needs to. And I think that's also part of what he's working on is like getting even better at base running so that it's not just an empty threat that, hey, I'm going to be on first base, but hey, I'm going to go ahead and steal second base or I'm going to go first to third as well. He has worked on, I, I wrote an article about kind of what the hitting coaches are working with him on, kind of keeping his back elbow in a little bit more. And he said that um, because he is, it's he's this way, Rukunetador is this way, Willie Calhoun is this way, that they're naturally right-handed guys that hit left-handed. And so a lot of what their swing was doing was drawing a lot of power from that front shoulder and the front arm. And as they were torquing, I'm trying to explain this in a way, I'm literally sitting on here, here at my couch, like holding my hands up in a left-handed batting stance. As they were... As they were torquing their you know, torso, that front shoulder was coming out a little bit, twisting too much back towards kind of the first base dugout. And he said, that's what's causing them to pull the ball too much. So if they can instead, it's kind of like the launch angle thing, but slightly different, still twist the hips to get the power, but the shoulder kind of opens almost down to up a little bit and the back elbow stays in a little more. And what that's supposed to do is keep the bat in the zone, like get the bat to the zone quicker, but keep the bat in the zone longer. So, you know, for a fastball, maybe you're more likely to hit that opposite field. But if you get fooled a little bit on a changeup or an off-speed pitch, maybe that's when you pull it. And so it all sounds good in theory. He's kind of struggled this spring. He hasn't got a whole lot of contact. And I wouldn't be surprised if it takes him a few months to really get what he's doing and really so it feels natural to him and he's comfortable at the plate doing it but he's really committed to going through as i said earlier going through the process and implementing that into his swing and so man if it works and he goes from being a 204 hitter that hits 40 home runs to being like a 260 hitter that hits 40 or 50 home runs now you're looking at somebody that is a perpetual all-star i think the rangers rotation as planned is kind of interesting given that they're a rebuilding team it's relatively older for a rebuilding team and more veteran we've all heard of spawn sane and pray for rain and i'm trying out minor lin and drink some gin possibly (laughs) a lot of gin and i'm not sure about minor and lin either i realize that this rotation which has more rehabbing arms than an orthopedic outpatient clinic is kind of a placeholder for the next great Rangers rotation, but do we have a sense of what that is going to look like, how they're going to approach rebuilding this rotation throughout the season? Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right that a lot of it is, John Daniels used the phrase buying time for these next wave of guys, but he also was very quick to make sure that like he didn't disparage the, the guys that he had. And so far, they've looked all right. The results were bad for Edinson Volquez. His first outing, he gave up four runs. But, you know, you go out and work on, hey, I'm throwing a fastball in a competitive baseball game. For the first time in over a year, the hitters know that. They're going to ambush a fastball. And, I mean, he hit 97. And that's a lot more, I think, than anybody expected. And Drew Smiley came out in his first outing. And he, the very first guy that he faced in competition was Mike Trout. That's, uh, that's, that's a tough first hitter to face. And <laughs> He got a one, two, three inning. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's really unreasonable to think that they're all five going to be good and healthy all year long. But, you know, if two of them do and become trade bait and then maybe, you know, you don't, you never want to hope somebody gets injured, but you got to think maybe one of them will get injured at some point. And then, and then that's when kind of the next wave of guys come up. I think Brock Burke is really close. He looks so good this spring. Johan Mendez looked better at the end of last season. 
those will probably be the first two guys up. And then um, from there, you've got Harado, Ariel Harado, Taylor Hearn, and Joe Palumbo kind of waiting in the wings. And I think all three of those guys will be in the big leagues probably before the year is over, at very least as a September call-up. We also talked to you last time you were on about Jerickson Profar and how mm-hmm. he had finally broken through and had a healthy and productive season, and now he's gone. So mm-hmm. why is he gone, and why did the Rangers want to make that move? Eli White is one of the guys they got back, and he's looking interesting in camp. I also wrote about him in the book, but I will give you a special dispensation to discuss oh, Eli White in the answer to this question. Yeah. So Eli White is, yeah, you said he's really interesting. They they like his diversity, but also kind of want to give him a shot to just play some shortstop this spring and see if he can still do that, you know, plus speed, plus defense. And I don't think it's going to be this year. I don't think he's going to be the guy that fills that utility role this year. But I think the headliner of the trade was was Burke. Uh, I think the Rangers really like him. He was the, the Tampa Bay minor league pitcher of the year last year. And then Kyle Bird is an interesting guy too, like not a high draft pick, wasn't super great in college but then here he is on the verge of making the big leagues and and showing good success so i think i think the rangers probably and i'm 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 guessing here because nobody has said this to me but i think they probably looked at profar's injury history and thought there's hey there's a chance that he might get hurt again Mm -hmm. he had some throwing errors last year maybe he's not the answer at third base and if we can get two and a half to three interesting guys for him right now that are young that are going to be contributing when the team is is competing again in you know 20 let's optimistically say 2020 but maybe 2021 then better that than to lose him in free agency and get nothing for him but you know we at least we got a couple good years of jerks and profile in texas I, I think it was as much timing as anything it's easy to lose track of the fact that nomar mazara is only going to be 24 this year but Still, his progress hasn't been as linear or as great as what everyone expected when he made the majors so early. And last season was, I feel like, particularly disappointing because in the first half, he looked like he was finally there. He hit 284 and slugged 485 through June. And then the second half, he just kind of disappeared. He hit 215 with just five home runs the rest of the way. And I know that. Some of that was a thumb injury that nagged him for most of that period. But how much of that was kind of retrograde motion and how much dispensation do we give him for the fact that he had an injury? What are the Rangers looking to see this spring? Yeah, I think the injury was was a factor for sure. I mean, thumb thumb injuries certainly are, uh, they make it difficult to swing a bat. And so I, he's a pretty quiet guy and and isn't the one that's going to give you 10 minutes worth of audio about exactly how bad his thumb hurts he would just kind of like nod and be like eh it's yeah it hurts <laughs> and so like it's hard to really uh, extrapolate from there but i think some of it is that his he's such a good bat to ball guy he gets contact on a lot of balls and so he's i think in the minor leagues and growing up he was able to swing at pitches outside the zone and get hits and now in the big leagues, he's learning that, like, yeah, you can you can swing at that ball that's four inches outside, and and you you can get the bat on it, and you can put it into play, but it's not going to be good contact. And so, if you'll be a little bit more selective, swing a little bit more at pitches in the zone, then you're going to get better contact. And I think that's probably their primary focus with him this year is getting better contact and hitting the ball in the air more. I mean, he's he's in the top, I think, five percent in the big leagues of uh, home runs per fly ball, but then was like the bottom 5% in fly ball rate. So he's not, he wasn't doing the things that gave him success. Now, obviously 
if he kept that home run per fly ball ratio and was one of the top fly ball hitters in the league, he'd be a freaking monster. But if he can just do it a little bit more, if he can hit the balls that are in the strike zone a little bit more, swing a little bit less at the pitches outside the zone, as simple as that sounds, I think that's going to be a very big step forward for him. And um, the trick, obviously, is you know the difference between identifying a problem and actually fixing it. So like you said, he's 23. I, I think I'm happy to give him another year or two before I start to think that it's a problem, like problematic. But yeah, it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on this year. It seems like the Rangers were fairly active for a team that was not expected to contend. They could have just sat out the offseason, but mm-hmm. they did make some moves, not big money moves, not impact moves, but Jeff Mathis and Jesse Chavez and Estrubo Cabrera and mm-hmm. Sean Kelly and Shelby Miller. These are recognizable known names, at least, that yeah. some rebuilding teams have just said, no thanks, we will just be terrible and we don't need right. to import these veterans to maintain some right. minimum level of, of decency. So why do you think it is that they decided to go that route? I mean, not that it's historically strange to sign some veterans and try to win more than 50-something games, but right. we have seen these extreme rebuilds of late where some teams have just opted not to do that. Yeah, I, I think John Daniels is generally a very like anti-tank guy. He will trade veteran assets and rebuild as needed. And we saw that back when he did the first rebuild and traded Mark Teixeira for all of those guys. But I just think philosophically, he the more I watch him, the more I kind of think like, I kind of like the fact that this guy hates to lose. Like he's not okay with just losing a bunch of games, even if that would in the long run be beneficial, maybe. And as a fan, I think that's, I, I mean, I hope the fans see that and appreciate it because that's kind of rare, I think. I mean, I said it, it's not rare for a GM to hate losing. Like obviously every GM wants to win a World Series, but just to be so so philosophically opposed to tanking. And I think he and and frankly, some of the coaches that I've talked to have even off the record where they could have been as honest as they wanted to expressed optimism that the team's going to be better than anybody thinks, that these young guys, they expect them to all take a step forward. The, you know, the offensive core of Mazzara, Gallo, Guzman, Odor was much better last year. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out, they've got some assets to trade at the deadline or worst case scenario, they've given their younger guys more time to develop in the minor leagues. But if it does, if everything breaks right, then, hey, you might be in contention for a wild card. And then these guys get a taste of winning. And so they kind of know what to chase in the coming years as they open a window of contention. That's the vibe that I get. And and it seems to be that the moves that they have made are sort of in line with that philosophy. Another way that this is a buying time season for the Rangers is that next year, their new ballpark, Globe Life Field, obviously <laughs> named after Shakespeare's groundbreaking Globe Life Theater <laughs> in London, Elizabethan London, it's supposed to be ready for 2020. Yes. And you used to hear a lot, maybe less so today, but one of the dominant narratives for the Rangers has often been just how withering the Texas heat was in the second half, mm-hmm. that it was a team that often fell off because of that. How much or to what degree will having a domed stadium be for this franchise? I think it's probably not as big as the people that say that all the time would think, but I think it's probably a lot bigger than the people who are like, eh, it's no big deal. The opponents also have to play in the heat. And it's it's a real factor. There have been free agents that I've heard of in the past that refused to sign here simply because like, I'm not going to go out and play in 100-degree weather 30 days in a row in June. Sorry. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's not the biggest factor. Obviously, the biggest factor is, am I going to win a World Series? And are you going to pay me the proper amount of money to help you win a World Series? 
but I think if you've got two equal opportunities and one team has a nice stadium and the weather's good and the other team is playing in the outskirts of hell, you're going to take the good stadium. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's good. And then also just from a fan standpoint, like it's dangerous hot. Like there was a game last, last year or the year before where it was 108 degrees at first pitch. And that's like the official temperature. Then in this like clay brick bowl cauldron on the field, it had to at least been like 115, 116. And like, that's dangerous for players. It's dangerous for fans. Like you don't want to come to a baseball game unless you're a triathlon competitor. Good luck getting grandma to like hang out down the first baseline. Like it's not, she, she might die. So I think it's, (laughs) I think it's like important and yeah, it's stupid that they had to build a new stadium, you know, 25 years after the first one. And I think it's also, I'm just diametrically opposed to the way that they did it with the taxes and like a lot of pro franchises, like ripping off taxpayers. But of course, all of that aside, like they should have got it right back in the first stadium and they should have put a dome on that. And then we wouldn't really even be having to have this conversation. So with the absence of Adrian Beltre, and at least for now, the absence of Bartolo Colon, the average age of the Rangers must have dropped by at least a, a couple of years just from their departures alone. Yeah. Right now, is there someone who is kind of filling that face of the franchise leader pumps up the team kind of role that Beltre did at least to a certain extent maybe he wasn't the most vocal when it came to leading and and was more of a lead by example guy but he had that stature at least yeah I mean I think it's Elvis's team now he's the guy he's been here the longest of anybody he is kind of pardon me going back to my uh, Old Testament roots as a child but like he he got Elijah's mantle passed on to Elisha like he's (laughs) he was in, in close proximity to Adrian Beltre and like was was the nearest person and he you know touched his head on the way out and now elvis is the new fun leader of the clubhouse yeah i mean he's he's the guy and he stuck around he did not take his opt out he wanted to be here wanted to be the guy that leads the team into their next window of contention and i think he wants to see the rangers win a world series he's been through he's been through a lot here i mean he's been through those two world series he was at the very center of the meltdown in toronto he sort of remade himself into a hitter that is not just a slap hitter with good speed on the base paths, but like he hit 20 home runs one year and he's had quite a story and it's all been in Texas. And I think he values the relationship with the organization. So he's the guy. And as early as like 2017, Adrian Beltre said that he started talking to Elvis about like, man, here's what you're going to have to do. Like, here are the, here's how to be a leader in the clubhouse. Here are your responsibilities. Beltre made the joke, like, here's how you keep Joey Gallo in line. But, and at first Elvis, there would be road trips that they'd be on and Beltre was injured and he'd be at home. And he said, Elvis would give him a call and be like, dude, this is way too hard. I can't do this. Like, I don't want, I don't want this role, but it kind of grew into it over the course of the the last couple of years. And, and um, I think it's weird to think of somebody who's been in the league since what, like 2008 or nine as a rookie again, but it, it feels like this is kind of his rookie year as the clubhouse leader. And I think he is up to the task. I think he wants to do it. And then I think it was good of the Rangers to surround him with somebody like, you know, as Drupal Cabrera to come in and, and kind of serve as a veteran who had been around, has been around a lot, has uh, sometimes a new voice is important. Like you want to you want somebody to reiterate what the old boss is telling you. So yeah, and then and then Shinsu Chu is like when you talk about quiet leaders that lead by example. Chu is definitely not a vocal guy, but he's he's like sneaky funny, and 
very well respected and he, you constantly see him talking to the younger guys um, about hitting and uh, about, I mean, goodness knows what, sometimes it's quiet and I don't get close enough to hear, but um, <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the rookies last year talked about asking questions of Chu and how he was a good, a good guy to just, you know, bounce ideas off of, and he's always willing to help. Here's how you keep Joey Gallo in line, threaten him with spiders. <laughs> Real case of arachnophobia, that guy, this is what you've got to do, Elvis, cultivate spiders. And I'm still marveling over your prior answer, and I'm rewriting take me out to the ball game in my head as buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack, grandma might die. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm just a little distracted. But one thing that the Rangers have struggled with and that a rebuilding team needs to rebuild are a good crop of young players. And this is a franchise, and in part this is due to the fact that they were winning, but their first-round draft picks, for example, are kind of a litany of, of horrors. And, I mean, Gallo aside, there there have been a lot of misses. A lot of players also traded during that run, trying to keep the run going. Have they addressed at all how they're going to in, increase the talent in the farm system besides guys like Hans Kraus and Julio Pablo Martinez, who looked really good coming out of Cuba last year and changed their philosophy? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've had, I think the last year or two have, has been a little better in the draft. They've had, you know, Bubba Thompson looks like he's going to pan out and um, a, a couple of the Cole win is, has been pretty good. But but you're right, for a long time, like the draft was just kind of a, the joke around here was like, if you want to get drafted by the Rangers, go be a, an, a scrappy infielder from Georgia. And that was kind of their, their MO. And they, they've gone away from that a little bit and really focused on on pitching and getting some strikeout guys. So I think part of it is a change in philosophy. And then part of it is they've hired a bunch of new development guys. And I think those development guys are partially going to be tasked with kind of helping with the draft. And and so again, at the risk of jumping into a taboo topic here, I think some of the development stuff is identifying those body types and identifying those guys that are going to fit well with a system that they're using. And they've been doing a little bit of work with, with uh, driveline baseball and with some of their young pitchers. And so on that end of things, the development, once the guys get into the system is important, but they, I, I've heard whispers that, that the driveline guys are going to be more involved, you know, in a, in a more organizational level and so we'll we'll see what that turns out and we'll see if we even hear about it when it happens because the team is always generally very tight-lipped about those partnerships and what they're using and who they're using and and so all of that to say that i think the team is aware i would certainly hope so because it was fairly obvious for a few years but yeah i I think there are steps being taken to address that and hopefully i'll have a, a better more full story for you guys in the coming months or possibly years. <laughs> this is not a previewy question, but I'll end on this probably other than okay. a prediction. I wanted just to ask you about your David Clyde story that you wrote on yeah. the 31st now, because that's Rangers related at least. And uh-huh. for people who did not see that, I will link to it so that they can. But okay. can you tell everyone how you came to that story and, and what you think of that situation? Yeah, so there's a guy that... Sometimes you get good ideas from people who are going about them the wrong way. <laughs> and so there's this guy named Douglas Gladstone and he sort of tipped me off to it and it was I was at a Christmas party when he sent it to me so that's how dedicated he is. It was like actually Christmas. And um I was like, "Hey man, uh I'm at a Christmas party. Send me a link or something and I'll I'll get back to you." So in the coming weeks I kind of read up on some of the material that he sent me and and then I 
looked at his Twitter feed and he's basically just haranguing baseball writers, like, <laughs> like sometimes borderline abusively. So, and like, you guys are afraid to lose your credentials. You won't talk about this. Everyone's afraid of Rob Manfred. So part of me wanted to just dismiss, you know, like, Oh, he's being crazy. So I'm going to step away. But the story that he was talking about seemed like it had some validity. And so I did my own research and looked into it. And the basis of the, of the problem, if you will, is that players who have less than four years of service time before 1980 were not given a pension. And I'll try to not get too, too complicated with this. But like right now, if you have, what is it, like 13 days or something on the big league roster, like you get a partial pension. If you get one day on a big league roster, you can buy into the league's healthcare program. Now, it's not cheap. Like it still costs a lot of money to buy into, but you at least have the ability to do it. And that was all part of the collective bargaining agreement in 1980, that you no longer had to serve four years of service time to qualify for a partial pension. You would get it pretty immediately. Well, that's all well and good, except for players like David Clyde, who was 36 days short of four years of service time, didn't get anything. And so he's like, I have almost four years. Could I maybe come back and just play 36 more days? <laughs> and so for years and years, there was nothing done. And the the league would kind of go back and and make amends to you know there were there were negro leagues players that were obviously prohibited from playing in big league baseball and so mlb took steps and dave winfield was very instrumental in this and they went and, and made made good by those players and gave them you know it's not a full pension but here's you know ten thousand dollars a year and then they expanded that to players that played in the negro leagues before baseball was fully integrated so before the red sox I think it was the Red Sox, right? They were the last team to integrate. Yes. So they were like, well, if even one team was discriminating, we'll give you you know, partial uh, a partial payment per year for that that resembles a pension, but it's not really a pension because when you die, your wife doesn't get to keep getting payments. It's just until you die. So there was a very ill-fated lawsuit. There was a player that said that MLB was basically employing reverse racism and that they were favoring the Negro Leagues players. And because these players were white, that's why they were not getting paid. And that was absurd because there were black players that were part of this group of players that were not getting paid anything. So when they went ahead and filed the lawsuit, basically they really upset the league and the league was kind of, you know, two middle fingers up, have fun with your non-pension lives, <laughs> which was also immature. Like that's not the right move to make just because somebody is stupid and files a lawsuit doesn't mean that you have to respond in like fashion, but it, it was really ugly for a while. So as I'm digging in, I start to tell the story and I'm like, okay, well, like maybe we can get some change here. And then I talk to somebody in the players union and I start to look around and there was in 2010, the league actually did something. And so they, these players are getting something. And so for David Clyde, let's say he had made his four years. And um, if he had retired at the age of like 48 or whatever, he'd be getting and I'm, I'm pulling these numbers out of the top of my head because my memory's bad, but they're all in the article. Something like $6,200 a year. If he had waited till he's 65, he'd be getting something like $30,000 a year. So according to this agreement with Big League Baseball, now he's getting like $8,000 a year. Well, that's not a lot, and it's certainly not as much as a pension would have been, but it's also, it's in the spectrum. Like, it's not like he's getting nothing anymore, and it's not like he's getting $500 a year. Like, it's it's something. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of, I like to write stories where I can tie it up neatly with a bow at the end. Yeah. And this just wasn't one of those. Like, yeah, Major League Baseball could be doing more. There's only like 600 players. The cost of funding a full pension for these guys would be negligible for big league baseball. 
And you've got guys who have gone through multiple bankruptcies. You've got guys who have, you know, Jeff Terpko, his wife had an extended illness and she passed away a few years ago. He, a lot of these guys, their bodies are just ruined by years and years and years in the minor leagues, which we all know they're not getting paid to play in the minor leagues. And that's why their careers careers were shortened in the big leagues. So could big league baseball do more? Yeah. Should they? Yeah, probably. But then I couldn't just rake them across the coals like I would for minor league pay because, well, they're, they're doing something and it's within the reasonable-ish scale of what a pension would be. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting story for a very select group of people who think pensions are interesting. <laughs> <But> <laughs> and podcast listeners, hopefully. For, yeah. For the, for the rest, yeah, everybody else has already turned this off. They're like, that's it. We've we stopped talking about Joey Gallo. I'm done. See, I saved the predicted win total for 2019 until after the David Clyde Yes, there we so go. No one could stop listening. <laughs> there we go. Uh, gosh. All right. So I haven't even thought about my prediction. So I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this off the top of my head right now. Okay. It's probably for the best. It's not worth <sighs> yeah. of too much of your time. <laughs> that also gives me an out too. Like if I'm way off, I'd be like, yeah, well, I just made it up when I, it was my first day <laughs> off of spring training. I was sleep deprived. Of course I made a terrible prediction. <laughs> right. Why did you say they were going to win one game this year? That's mathematically almost <laughs> impossible. No, I, I think there's a, oh, man, there's just such a broad range. Like if everything breaks right, I think they could contend for a wild card. If everything breaks wrong, it could be kind of like last year and they could win, you know, 65 games. So mm-hmm. Let's be optimistic and say 84 wins. Okay. All right. That is optimistic. It is very, it's very optimistic. <laughs> it is. That means Edinson Volquez comes back and he's good. Yep. Drew Smiley comes back and he's good. Shelby Miller is good. I'm just, actually, I'm just going to name all the players and go. That means things went really well for them. So <laughs> things went Adrian well for Adrian Beltre unretires and he's 25 again. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That, actually, I think that would Beltre do it. was probably better when he was like 38 than when he was there, 25. <laughs> but yeah, he's the true. exception. Uh, all right. Well, I hope that that's the case for Rangers fans. That's a, a nice world to live in where the Rangers yeah, win 84 wanna, games. <laughs> I just don't want to like listen to people on Twitter. When when the team loses their ninetieth game, yeah, I think I'm I think I'm coming to a realization here. Like we've talked about the Feigl thing, we've talked about the Gallo tweet. I'm mm-hmm. like making optimistic predictions just because I don't want to put up with people on Twitter. I should just quit Twitter. Like that's what I need to do. That would make my life so much better. Just yeah. everything just is pointing to that. Just just follow me on text messages, and then I can just throw away my phone and walk into the sunset a free man. <laughs> Well, for now, you can still follow Levi on Twitter at 32EFIS, but don't tweet at him, please. And you can also read him at The Athletic. Thank you, as always, Levi. Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. And thank you very much, Steve, for joining me and being the last guest co-host here and helping me get through this little interregnum. And for people who don't know, I think you are probably as responsible as any other writer or media person for this podcast existing indirectly, because I don't know whether I would still be doing all this stuff if not for your help and encouragement early on in my career. And it has been a pleasure not only to be your friend, but to listen to your podcast, which I have plugged on the show before and in the Facebook group, but wholeheartedly endorse again, not just because we're pals, but because it really is one of my favorite podcasts, baseball or otherwise. So the infinite inning, everyone, please go listen and subscribe.
That is awfully sweet of you. You've always been more than generous about saying those things. And I think that the scales are more than balanced because I had kicked around rather impotently the idea of doing a podcast for forever and was kind of nervous about doing it and reluctant. And you really, your encouragement helped talk me into it. And now I'm working on episode 96 nearly... (laughs) I guess two years later. So yeah, that's the problem. I told you how to start one. I did not tell you how to end one because I'm not very good at that. (laughs) Yeah. And you also sent me these emails like 101 easy ways to get rich making a podcast. And that hasn't (laughs) happened yet either, buddy. So (laughs) I feel like I was misled, but no, I, I really appreciate that. And it is so wonderful to be as ancient as I am and watch somebody like you come along and just know how special they were and then watch them fulfill. This is like scouting, isn't it? I was a good (laughs) scout, man. Well, at least that one time I was. So uh, to see you at Georgetown a hundred years ago now and watch you fulfill every expectation that I had is such a wonderful thing. And I am so honored to be the last guest co-host ever. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure no co-host will ever leave me again. This will be (laughs) permanent and nothing will ever change. I don't think we started making any money on this show until, I don't know, 800 episodes in, something like that. So (laughs) that's uh, that's how many you have to get to before it becomes remunerative in some way. 710 to go. All right. I'll get I'll work harder. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. All right, so that will do it for today. Thanks to Steve and our guests. And as I mentioned, the co-host situation will be resolved next time. The suspense will end soon. I'm sorry it's lasted as long as it has, but hopefully you've enjoyed these episodes in the interim. And I'm very grateful that so many of you have continued to support the show, despite not knowing exactly what the show is or would be from day to day. So we do welcome your support on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, as have the following five listeners. Dylan Bennett, Brian D. Knight, Steve Horniak, David Bob. Bosniak, and my wife left me. Oh no, I'm sorry. I hope that's just a joke and not true. But if it is true, I hope this podcast has taken your mind off your troubles. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance and for keeping me company during my Effectively Wild solo career. You can pre-order my book, which I have managed to plug multiple times while recording this episode. It's called The MVP Machine and comes out later this spring. Thanks for listening, and we will be back to talk to you soon. Living.